Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A weird story about affordable housing in Stony Creek. Also, Hamilton's LRT. MPs get back to work. X-rated on X. Mac welcomes the world and a taste of the falls. Enjoy the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. People not too satisfied at all in Stony Creek saying it poses serious challenges for our already congested area. Some business owners and residents are voicing their opposition to a proposal to build two affordable housing projects in downtown Stony Creek. Tracy McKinnon is the executive executive director of the Stony Creek BIA and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tracy, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. So we have five Lake Avenue South and 13 Lake Avenue South, both owned by the city, and they've been zoned for housing for decades. So why are you and the BIA against this plan to build these affordable units? So it seems to have been mistakenly um, thought of as a vacant parking lots and underutilized space. So we're not really sure where that came from. It's a very well-used um, area. We have a lot of uh, health care uh, in the area, and uh, it's part of a big parking lot that uh, is well used, and it's clearly not underutilized. It may have been something decades ago, because at one point it was uh, residential and the fire hall. Um, but you know, over the decades, it's become a very well used area, and somehow it's mistakenly been categorized as underutilized, which it's clearly not. So, how did we get to this stage? Did someone at City Hall make an error? Uh, I don't know. It's it's really uh, out of the blue in December. Um, something came up that this was going to be developed, and but not for the actions of our councillor Matt Francis. Um, this would have been approved to no one's knowledge. So um, he was given an opportunity to bring it to the community, and the community is not happy. Uh, many many residents are not happy at all. Sounds like there was no consultation from the city to residents to say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Absolutely not. Which is, and it's kind of unusual because last year they we were in discussions about, you know, finding funds to pave the whole area to uh, repave all these lots. So, um, and one thing that that's really shocking to us is, um, fought number five Lake Ave is actually been officially named by the city for decades um, as Veterans Lane. So we have a huge legion presence in downtown Stony Creek. The legions uh, mean a lot and the veterans mean a lot to us. And this would just like bulldoze right over that. So it's kind of shocking to us. So that's uh, what we're concerned about. Yeah, so I'd imagine the veterans aren't too pleased with this either. Uh, Not at all. And there's lots of uh, military history. I don't know if anybody knows, but that's basically where... Uh, Canada got on the route to becoming Canada when the Americans returned back in the Battle of Stony Creek in 1813. So we hold our veterans very dear. So to have it bulldozed over, it's it's really odd and bizarre and kind of shocking for us. Absolutely. Tracy McKinnon is the executive director of the Stony Creek BIA at issue. The city's looking at a couple of parking lots in downtown Stony Creek and thinking, oh, here's two prime spots. We can build some affordable housing units. We all need more affordable housing in this community. Problem is uh, these parking lots are well used. What would this do to downtown Stony Creek if, if these projects went ahead? Well, it, it would certainly take away a lot of um, parking that's clearly being used. We, ha- we do have a lot of um, seniors and low-income um, 
assessment properties uh, in downtown Stony Creek. So to just come in and kind of wipe out Veterans Lane uh, is really a, a shock to um, our community. And a, a num- it's not just the businesses, but multiple, multiple residents are signing a petition and are not happy at all that there's been no consultation. And this is a well-used um, medical services community. We have a lot of seniors, a lot of uh, people needing um, assistance that come to the community. And this would just really be a shock to us and and uh, create a lot of problems. Any idea when that petition will be handed to City Hall? Yes, we have it um, at a number of the businesses and online, and we will be handing it to City Hall for the deadline to make the uh, 21st, February 21st meeting. So it's it's going on until Friday, February 9th. Are there more appropriate alternative sites in Stony Creek for these kind of projects? Absolutely. There are multiple sites, lots of uh, vacant land. It's like not these little postage stamp size that are smack in the middle of a well-used area. We're, we, there's, that's another question is, why were these properties chosen? There's no discussion. Of all the properties in all the whole city, there are multiple, uh, lots of space all around us that just in this little tiny downtown congested area this pops up. So we're not sure what the other lots are because there's been no discussion, but there are a number of city properties around, yes. Strange story to say the least. Tracy, thank Mm -hmm. you so much for the time this morning. Good luck with us. Thank you for the time. Have a great day. You too. Tracy McKinnon is the executive director of the Stony Creek BIA. Statement from the city says, quote, the subject properties are part of a report which had its recommendations deferred by the city's planning committee because decisions are still required by committee slash council. City staff are not able to comment before the privilege of review is afforded to committee and council will certainly have to wait for the next meeting in regards to this at City Hall to figure out what is going to happen. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk a little LRT, our favorite acronym here in the city. Because the question is, who should operate Hamilton's LRT system when it is eventually completed? Should it be the local transit union or... Should it be a private entity? Well, the president of the local transit union, ATU Local 107, Eric Tuck, not too happy with a report that recommends a private contractor, not the city, run the LRT for at least 10 years. If things do go wrong, and they can go wrong, even if it's run in-house, who's going to be held accountable? Who's going to be able to address the, the concerns of the public? Carl Andrus is a community benefits manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network and joins us on GMH. Carl, good morning. How are you? Morning. Great. Thanks for having me. So the staff report from the city says the recommended model, which would have a private contractor run the system for at least 10 years, would result in the least risk to the city and potentially the lowest costs. What do you make of this recommendation? I find the recommendation itself seemed to be a little bit biased, especially when it comes to considerations around the cost. All of the costing models that we have, and actually the most um, the most recent in-depth costing model that we've done was actually in 2011. And in that costing model done by the city, the Hamilton Rapid Transit uh, Feasibility Study, uh, it actually modeled on based on a public operation of the system and modeled the costs based on the public operation of the system. You see, I have to understand, in that report, the city mentions that there would be a higher upfront cost to be covered in order to do the hiring required to create the um option four model. 
However, the private consortium will also have those same constraints and those same costs. But what they'll do is they'll bury that cost, that upfront cost, into the monthly charges they charge the city for the operation and maintenance of the system. You have to remember the taxpayers are on the hook because of the agreement with the province for operation and maintenance, no matter who runs the system. And we've had a bad history in Hamilton of privatization. I'm sure some of your listeners will remember the, the water fiasco that happened quite a number of years ago now and what a debacle that was when we tried to privatize our water system. So when it comes to the costs, are we paying the same amount just differently? If it was the local transit union, we would pay, as you suggested, a bigger lump sum out of the gate. But with the private entity, we'd pay the same just spread out over a number of years. Well, we probably end up paying a little bit more because you have to remember with the private model, we were also looking at having that that for-profit measure that has to be added in there. No private transit company operates as a not-for-profit. They are for-profit companies. So they are going to make sure that they are getting paid and that their shareholders are getting paid from our tax dollars to operate and maintain the system. Whereas if it's operated locally by the HSR, then our city councillors and our public will have a transparent look at exactly what everything costs. You have to remember that most of these transit companies, um, they share some of the same baseline costs in terms of wages, in terms of equipment, in terms of all those things that you'd run. So somewhere along the line, in order to make a profit, something has to happen. They either have to suppress the wages, hire low, low contract workers um, that may not be as trained, or um, they have to skirt somewhere else in the design to make that, or they have to pass that cost on to the city of Hamilton. So that's why I take a little bit of issue with the city's costing model. But even despite the cost, the supposed lower cost, there was only one point scoring difference between Operation 4, which was the city operating it, and Operation 2, which was the privatization that staff is recommending. Hmm. Carl Andrus is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Carl is the Community Benefits Manager at Hamilton Community Benefits Network. We're talking LRT and who should run the darn thing when it is all built eventually. We have two prime examples of how it is working well and not working well. Ottawa, not so good. Waterloo has a much heralded LRT system that is run by a third-party operator. Can we glean any examples of the good and bad from those two and implement them here in Hamilton? Well, that's exactly the, the chance that we have. We have the opportunity to learn from both systems and to develop a, a public model system. You have to remember, staff is also, as you mentioned in the interim, recommending that we pick up option four after 10 years. So rather than doing it right away and saving the taxpayers that additional profit uh, expense that will come from the private company, we do that in 10 years, which seems a little bit ridiculous since Hamilton tradition of kicking things down the road. Um, in terms of the Waterloo model, the Waterloo model was a little bit different because they paid to build the system, whereas here in Hamilton, the province is paying to build the system. Um, so the Waterloo model isn't exactly the same because they packaged everything together, including the cost of construction, into their monthly operating fees and monthly fees that they, because their region is on the hook for most of the project. They only got some funding from other levels of government, where 100% of our system is being paid for by the federal and provincial governments, and we're only on the hook for the operation and maintenance. And one of the things that consortiums tend to do in these large P3 products is they underbid on the construction value so that they can overcharge on the operation and maintenance and recoup some of the fees in that in that regard through the P3. So we have an opportunity to learn from both systems, do something different that's a made in Hamilton solution. And that solution is really to look at option four and to bring the, those facilities in-house so that we have some control. Um, as Eric mentioned in the, in the preamble, you really want to be able to call your counselor if there's a problem with your transit system and have them have some power to do something. If we privatize that to a third party 
operator, there's going to be very little that a city councillor can do in terms of oversight of that system. They won't be able to call the director of the HSR to council and ask questions about why something isn't working or what changes need to be made to the system. They'll be completely beholden to a uh, to a tran- to a transit system that's privatized and to an outside private company. We've got a minute left. From what I understand, Metrolinx is going to have the final say anyways. Is this much ado about nothing? Um, I don't think so. Metrolinx has shown a flexibility in terms of um, the way that they're setting up the construction into two phases, one being an alliance model for phase one and a P3 for phase two. And they have always suggested that we would be able to have operations um, in good faith. All the city council has to do is request it. And I believe that Metrolinx will actually grant that request, um, provided that we just look at that option four that's on the table from them, which is the city performs all aspects of operational activities. LRT, it's the gift that keeps on giving to the news cycle. Carl, thank you so much for the time this morning. Yeah, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Carl Andrus is with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network, chiming in on his thoughts on whether it should be run privately or with the local transit union already in place. Poll question of the day today, resting comfortably on X at AM 900 CHML. Do you think the Super Bowl will be even more interesting because of the Taylor Swift-Travis Kelsey romance? Yes, you can't get enough of this. Bring on the Swifties or no, God, no, for the love of God, stop it already. Vote now on X at AM 900 CHML. 69% of you are saying absolutely no. You've had enough of it. Make it stop already. No, God, please, no, 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 no. Well, whether or not you feel like Michael Scott or not, vote on X at AM 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day today in Ottawa. Parliament is resuming. It's the first sitting of 2024. Conservatives will fight throughout this session to axe the tax, build the homes, fix the budget, stop the crime. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University and joins us on GMH. Dr. Turnbull, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Maybe we'll start with the uh, long-awaited inquiry into foreign interference, which begins today. How do you think this is going to work? Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how much it's been being pulled into the political environment. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how much the parties pick it up. Because, you know, this is going to be, I think, a long process. This is something that really dominated the first half of last year, but then it kind of fell off the radar. You know, once uh, David Johnston was was removed from the process, removed himself. Removed himself. Um, and so we'll see whether this really takes over. Uh, it seems to me that the conservatives are, are really focused on, you know, as, as the clip said, we're going to axe the tax, we're going to get rid of crime and all that other stuff he said. So it'll, I would suspect they're going to focus more on that messaging. In regards to this inquiry, and then we'll move on to some of the things that uh, we're going to expect in this uh, sitting of uh, of Parliament. Who knew what and when, I feel, is going to remain a mystery. Your thoughts? Yeah, and it, a lot of it will have to do with how, um, you know, how, like how the, the commissioner interprets the mandate. It will have a lot to do with what is really going to happen uh, in terms of witnesses and the process and, you know, these things... Um, you know, can definitely be pulled into, again, like the political back and forth. But oftentimes, these things aren't set up to answer political questions, right? The po- politicians want to get certain things out of it so that they can use it to to their advantage. But that's not the role of these sorts of things. And so um, I think probably for the most part, they'll exist on parallel tracks with occasional, 
you know, references from the political side to what's going on in the commission. In regards to this sitting of parliament, what are you eagerly anticipating? Oh, boy. I'm not sure I'm eagerly anticipating anything in some ways. And that <laughs> makes me sad because, you know, this is what, what th- this is used to be the most exciting thing for me is the return of parliament. But now I'm like, oh, God, like, the, you know, the, the way they left it in December was pretty rough where the exchanges were mostly, um, you know, really vitriolic. And, and the tactics are um, designed really to, to kind of stall things. Now, I say that, and obviously the opposition's role is to, to put up an alternative and to obstruct what the government's doing if they don't agree with it. And in a minority government situation, I mean, we certainly see that happening. But the, the all-night sittings and the kind of tone that, that both the prime minister and the conservative leader take during question period is a bit, uh, is a bit disenchanting. And so I wonder whether people are really going to notice this at all, that Parliament's coming back, because a lot of people are self-selecting out. That said, there's there are big pieces of legislation that the government wants to move through. It'll be interesting to see how they do that with the NDP support. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me, at least over the last year, and I'm going to assume it's going to be for the rest of this year, everyone seems to be in campaign mode and nothing really is getting done on the big issues of the day. That Well, I mean, now I feel like we're in campaign mode all the time. We used to say that about the Americans, and now it's true of us, too. And I think you're right, like, especially in minority government, maybe, but even all all the time, like the parties are so focused on getting what they can from what's going on in politics to then like even stuff like when they're saying things in the House, they're taking clips of it and then farming that out as part of their social media clips. And I mean, you know, this is all politics. This is how it works. But. In an ideal world, there's more of a of an overlap between politics and policy, I think. And I think that's, it's, it actually has a reverse effect than, than what they really want. People get more turned off by this a lot of the time than interested in what is coming out in these clips. I agree. Dr. Lori Turnbull is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. We're chatting about Parliament resuming today for the first time in 2024. You mentioned the confidence and supply agreement between the Liberals and NDP. If you were to make a wager, would you say that it remains intact for the entirety of this year? Um, I think it will remain intact for a while, but I think I'm not sure about the whole year. I think the parties have to make a decision about the circumstances under which they want to break up, because going to an election in this agreement strikes me as not advantageous to either of them. They want to differentiate themselves. Uh, the NDP uh, has to worry about the fact that liberals who are afraid of Pierre, or sorry, NDP voters who are afraid of Pierre Polyev will end up going liberal. And even a lot of the liberal uh, voters are, you know, comp- according to, to survey data we saw last week, even liberal voters, a lot of them are there because they want to make sure that there's no Pierre Polyev government, right? And so the parties have to figure out how they want to leverage that strategic vote aspect to their advantage. And if it looks like there's no difference between the parties, I think they're kind of both at risk, actually. And so the NDP might want to make pharmacare, full-fledged pharmacare, everything they want, the key issue. And if the Liberals don't give it, well, then, you know, maybe they walk on that. But the Liberals might say, listen, we we don't think that this is the year for financial reasons. We're trying to keep some fiscal prudence in the budget, and this is not the time to roll out a pharmacare plan. And the two parties might feel quite comfortable going to their respective voter bases and saying, we decided this, you know, we decided this is what was right. And maybe we will see um, a bit of space between the parties. But, you know, it depends on the budget. It depends. Neither of them wants to go to the election this year, that's for sure. So they might decide they need each other a little longer.
Is uh, all of last year the the big issue was housing and and the cost of living. Is that going to remain the top item? I mean, absolutely, because I think uh, it's not solved by any means. And I think it's going to continue to be it's going to be it's going to continue to be a big issue for a lot of Canadians, even whether you have housing or not. The cost of it, the availability, um, various tensions around how, how to build new housing, how to increase the supply of affordable housing, how to do that quickly. It's all going, also going to be a big uh, point of negotiation with the provinces and with the municipalities because the feds can't totally control the whole thing. Even if they're willing to put the money in, they still have to work with other levels of government to get it done. And so it creates a certain amount of unpredictability in how all of it will roll out. I also think you know the broader affordability issue is going to continue to remain um, the key issue. And uh, other issues will appear under that umbrella, like the affordable housing, like the carbon tax, things like that. Lots to chew on, but it sounds like we're going to need some extra butter on our popcorn for this uh, sitting of Parliament. <laughs> Dr. Turnbull, so. thanks for the time this morning. Anytime. Take care. That is Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Chew it on some of the big stories as Parliament uh, resumes today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A bit of a disturbing topic we're going to get into. But it's important that we have these conversations. This revolves around X-rated AI-generated images of Taylor Swift. They circulated on X last Wednesday and garnered, as you can imagine, tens of millions of views before they were removed. In a statement, X said, quote, Our teams are actively removing all identified images and taking appropriate actions against the accounts responsible for posting them. My question is... How does this happen on a social media giant site in 2024? Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist and good friend of the show. And join us now on GMH. Carmi, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. Thanks for having me. My question is, what the heck? What's that? What the heck is going on here? <laughs> well, I mean, you ask how this can happen. It happens when a platform like X, and today we're talking about X. We're going to kind of dump on the company formerly known as Twitter, but uh, let's be honest, this could happen on any platform. And in fact, it has in other scenarios and it probably will continue to happen. So today's the next conversation, but really this is an industry-wide issue. And the way it happens is when they dr- when they dial back their moderation efforts, when they dial back the technology and the people uh, who are specifically allocated to identifying when this kind of content appears uh, on the platform, and then they are charged with getting rid of it. Uh, you know, X very famously laid off the vast majority of its employees last year and specifically targeted the safety and moderation team. Uh, so the moderators who would have normally uh, addressed this no longer work for the company, and even though they've just announced that they're going to set up a new team in Austin, Texas, 100 people isn't really going to go that far. Uh, and they're also not sharing details on the technology, ironically, AI-based technology, that it will be used to automatically identify this kind of content as it goes onto the platform so they can deal with it that way as well. So there, you know, it's a combination of people and technology that could fix this, but the companies have been going in the other way. And Meta is part of it as well. They've also drawn down the, that team um, that the industry has been going the wrong way, taking resources away from uh, addressing this and fixing this as opposed to putting resources into it. One of the criticisms of X in this story is that it was too slow to respond. You mentioned not as many moderators and, and security officials uh, as they had in the past. 
How quickly should they respond to an incident like that? How quickly can you respond to something like this? Well, certainly, I mean, in the ideal world, it, it would it would appear and then it would be immediately removed before it can even be picked up or go viral or uh, grabbed and shared or saved elsewhere. Uh, in this case, the magic number is 17 hours. Uh, and so I think we can all agree that 17 hours between the time the images appeared and the time that they were taken down uh, is completely unacceptable because it gave time for them to be seen tens of millions of times. Uh, it gave time for others to grab them off of the platform and then make them available in perpetuity across other platforms um you know we you know you and i've talked about this before we know that images have uh, a significantly long half-life uh, on the internet nothing ever fully disappears there is no delete button so uh less than 17 hours i would say immediate uh and and unfortunately where the bar is now it is way too far uh, from that and the industry in general and x in particular have a very long way to go toward assuring us that they can automatically capture this content and make sure that it doesn't spread. On the other side of the equation, you know, Elon Musk and everyone at X wants as many eyeballs on their product. This is not a way to go about doing so, but is this a strategy from their part? You know, that's the the, the sad irony of deep fake porn is that it attracts, especially when Taylor Swift's name is attached to it, uh, this drives the issue into the mainstream and somewhat perversely, it massively spikes engagement on the platform. Everyone hears that this is going on on X. They rush to their, their, their X app. They open it up. They look for the content. This traffic drives engagement. It drives ad impressions. It drives revenue for the company. So while the company out of one side of its mouth says, well, we're going to do everything that we can to fix this uh, and make sure that this kind of content does not see the light of day. Uh, it, this is the social media industry's equivalent of ratings, and they got great ratings for this. And so uh, they made money um, off of this particular event. And I think Elon Musk would be very hesitant in the back of his mind, especially as he's scrambling for revenue. We know the company is in trouble uh, to you know work too hard to stop this from happening again. Not saying that he wants it. But economically, let's be clear, this benefits the company. Given that, does Taylor Swift say, hey, Elon, I'm now filing a civil suit because you're damaging my reputation here? I think it's only a matter of time before lawsuits like this are launched. It wouldn't surprise me if Taylor Swift is the one to lead the charge because, uh, unfortunately for her, she's the one uh, on whose brand this was driven into the mainstream. Deep fake porn has been a thing for a while. You don't have to be a celebrity to be victimized by it uh, every day. Just ask any individual, uh, you know, someone who, who whose ex-boyfriend has decided to post revenge porn about them um, and, and, and their their brand is being damaged their reputation is being driven you know dragged through the mud uh but in taylor swift's case now we're paying attention because of course everybody knows who she is and so i think it's only a matter of time and we we know that she's been very progressive in terms of lawsuits to protect her copyright her intellectual property her brand and this would simply be an extension of that so i suspect the lawyers have already been contacted i suspect the papers are already being drawn up yeah, that is one lawsuit I can get behind. No doubt about that. Uh, Carmi, mm -hmm. thank you so much for the time this morning. Appreciate being here, Rick. Thank you. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist weighing in on the deep fake porn that Taylor Swift was embroiled in circulating on X and these X-rated AI-generated images, which you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis, I guarantee 
uh, garnering tens of millions of views on X. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The 45th McMaster World Congress is going to be held this coming Thursday and Friday. It's a free event that this time around is going to focus on financial literacy. It's going to be held at the Mac Student Center's CIBC Hall. And here to talk about it is the Mac World Congress Program Director, Dr. Nick Bontis. Dr. Bontis, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm fantastic. Tell us about this event and and why this McMaster World Congress draws so well each and every year. Well, first of all, I'd like to say how proud we are to have the 45th year of anything happening anywhere. These things (laughs) are very difficult to manage, as you can imagine, and having them run over four or five decades is quite a testament to the commitment McMaster has on the event. It It actually happens to be Canada's oldest running student conference, so we're very proud of that. And this year, Uh, As you may know, over the years, we've changed to a bunch of different themes, sports management, artificial intelligence, technology. But this year, financial literacy is the topic that the students have decided is the important one they want to learn more about. And uh, as you can imagine, when you have 20, 21, 22-year-olds, you know, with student debt, they're interested in learning about investments and securities and credit cards and how to manage that for the long haul. Absolutely. Finances and financial literacy on on the minds of many people, which is a great topic. Is is this tailor-made for students, or is this open to anyone who wants to find out more about this topic? Yep, so this is uh, one of the special, unique features of the McMaster World Congress. We, we're very much engaged with the local community, so we invite anybody, any of your listeners, or anybody who's interested in learning more about literacy to come to McMaster's campus on Thursday or Friday. Uh, the event is free for the community. We have sponsors that we'd like to thank for that. Uh, So the speakers themselves tailor their message uh, not only to students, but we do appreciate that there is a a small percentage of local individuals that are in the audience as well. And I think, generally speaking, a topic like financial literacy uh, is important no matter, uh, you know, what your age or, or what your position, frankly. The McMaster World Congress always brings together some great guest speakers. Um, anyone that is uh, really exciting to you on this list this year? Yeah, I mean, there's a handful. Uh, we, we start off with the opening speaker, which who's Michael Kovacs. He's also a, a local businessman, uh, lives here in Ancaster, has a business uh, in, uh, in Oakville, uh, Harvest ETFs, which is an exchange traded fund company. So this is a relatively new product in the, in the financial services horizon. Probably most people and most of your listeners have heard of mutual funds, which is generally speaking a, a basket of stocks that you can invest in. Well, the difference between a mutual fund and an ETF is that that basket of stocks can also be traded uh, throughout the day. And it turns out that Harvest ETFs is uh, infamous for having Canada's first ever blockchain ETF. So I know the the, the, the cryptocurrencies have been in the news a lot in the last couple of weeks, including uh, the fact that uh, Bitcoin was going to be part of an ETF in the U.S. So this is a very, very timely presentation. And obviously, cryptocurrency uh, is very interesting, not only from from the perspective of investing, but also, you know, as it pertains to this idea of having this kind of global digital economy that we're all uh, rushing into. That's pretty cool. Dr. Nick Bontis is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Bontis is the program director of the McMaster World Congress. They're holding their 45th Congress coming up this Thursday and Friday to register. Again, it's free. Go to worldcongress.mcmaster.ca. And you mentioned this is a student-run Congress. Mm-hmm. What do the students get out of this? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, to run an operation, um, there's uh, a tremendous amount of things they can learn. Um, you know, first of all, sponsorship. You know, how do you how do you go after corporate clients? How do you reach out to them? How do you 
sell an event to them. Uh, so we have a, a, a corporate sponsorship team. Uh, then you have operations. Operations is, uh, as you can imagine, you know, how do you uh, manage the stage? Uh, how do you, you know, make reservations? How do you handle food? How do you handle processing registrations? Uh, you know, the whole AVTV side of screens and audio and projection. And then you have marketing and social media. So you think about it, it's, it's kind of like a small business um, that we run. And frankly, every year, you know, we've been doing it the first week of February. And typically, we kind of the exhale after the conference is done. We have about 3,000 student seats walking through the event over two days. So it's quite a high traffic event. I take a break for about a week before I start recruiting <laughs> students for the following year. And students, uh, they take about 12 months uh, to, to run this project from beginning to end. So it's definitely a, a, an amazing hands-on experience for students to, to run an event, uh, you know, garnering the type of experience they need for, for the real world. How has technology changed the Congress over the years? Because we, I mean, going back 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it's, it's a much different space that we live in now. Right, right. Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of things that have changed. You know, when students register, you know, they, they, they swipe their student card electronically today. Well, that wasn't the case, as you can imagine, 10, 15 years ago. Social media is also a big change. I mean, we, we typically have a screen uh, or, you know, several large screens uh, in, in the theater at, at the student center that, you know, basically project the speaker on stage. But we also have screens on the side now where social media and posts are running live uh, throughout the conference. So of course, uh, you know, this is a, a, an element of, of today's population. You know, people are always on their phones and trying to figure out what's happening. And so uh, with, with, with uh, Twitter or with uh, Instagram or any of those social media tools. So I think, frankly speaking, you know, things have changed. It's, you know, we're, we're living in an age where the scarcest resource is people's attention. So uh, same thing goes with a, with a conference. You know, students have a lot of choice when it comes to things they can do on campus. And uh, we're lucky enough that we've been able to attract students' uh, attention for 45 years. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's very, very important for students to learn how to socialize and network with real business people. At the end of the day, that's what they're going to be doing. I was going to get to that. I've, I've been to a Mac World Congress. I was a guest speaker at one years ago. And this, yeah. is, a, this is a great networking event. It is. I mean, that at the end of the day, you know, students have to understand that, you know, what they read in books is very important and acts as the foundation, but you've got to translate that theory into action. And, you know, if you've got somebody like Michael Kovacs, who's, you know, one of the prominent executives in the world of exchange-traded funds in the audience, and you are an individual who's studying finance, and you think you want to pursue a career in finance, it's very, very important for you to be able to meet people like uh, Mr. Kovacs and socialize with them. Uh, we have, in addition to listening to a speaker, all of our speakers typically hang around uh, for the rest of the day so they can socialize with students. So I've told so many of them, you know, t Rick, talk about old school things. Back in our day, we used to hold our resume in our hand, if mm -hmm. you remember. There was such a thing as a paper resume. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're giving students advice, like when there's an executive in front of you, hand them your resume, they look at you with, you know, uh, with, you know, with confusion because uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the age where you distribute your resume by paper anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is a great event. I encourage everyone to uh, check it out this Thursday, Friday online. You can register worldcongress.mcmaster.ca. Dr. Bontis, appreciate the time. Good luck with us. Thank you very much, Rick. We appreciate your support. All the best. Dr. Nick Bontis is the program director of the McMaster World Congress. And yeah, I was, I was a guest speaker at a World Congress, uh, geez, at least at least five years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. And it was phenomenal. The people that come out,
both students and just you know regular folk it is a it's a really great time that is for sure you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml we are smack dab in the middle of flavors of niagara falls this is a month-long celebration of culinary excellence involving about 20 local restaurants in the falls and it includes a handful of world-renowned chefs, including our next guest. Chef Bob Bloomer is a celebrity chef, an author, a TV host, and a Guinness World Record holder, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Chef Bloomer, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. How did you get involved in this project? I was invited. <laughs> Case um, closed. It's, it's, uh, um, it's a fantastic project. I think some different restaurants have uh, some of their own programs going on, and then a uh, small handful of uh, folks from the Food Network and whatnot were invited to come uh, and uh, and create a meal with no, you know, no limits. I was asked to just bring my very best game. Wow. You're going to be at the Flour Mill Scratch Kitchen Restaurant on February the 1st, which is this Thursday. What do you have planned for diners? Um, well, I reached into my bag of tricks from uh, 25 years of cooking um, I have a, a couple of dishes from my days as the surreal gourmet, where I present things that are made from one set of ingredients but look like something completely different. So you you really, when the dish hits the table, you have no idea what you're eating. Um, and then I have a couple of dishes uh, from my most recent book, Flavor Bomb. So book uh, things that really e- explode literally, well, figuratively and sometimes literally in your <laughs> mouth. Um, and, uh, and then I'm going to do a couple of demos. So I'm going to be like Penn and Teller. You know, I'm going to do a magic trick and, and have you eat something that you're going to be a little confused about how I made those flavors happen. Nice. And then just like Penn and Teller, I'm going to reveal the trick after the fact and, and show the guests how they can make it themselves at home. Awesome. You obviously you're you're an incredibly talented individual when it comes to creating these unique dishes. Is half the fun also seeing people's reactions to what you've made? Oh, for sure. Um, uh, some of my dishes will look like a traditional dish until you actually dive into it and taste it. And uh, and I really do. You you really nailed that. I, I, I get so much pleasure when people sort of look up at me and they go, how, how did you make that happen? <laughs> uh, that I'm thinking in particular about this dessert that I do that uh, I, I don't want to give anything away, but it arrives at the table um, it's called an existential egg, and it arrives at a ta- at the table, looking and seeming just like a soft-boiled egg uh, in its complete shell. Um, but the diner discovers something else that hmm. isn't necessarily a soft-boiled egg inside it, even though they were the person to cut the top of the egg off. Wow, very interesting, and something you can find out more from by attending Flavors of Niagara Falls. It's on now until February the 11th. For information and tickets, go to niagarafallstourism.com slash flavors of Niagara Falls. What does your test kitchen look like? <laughs> you know, my test kitchen at home looks like uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse kitchen. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a tiny kitchen. My oven came with my house. It's an O'Keefe and Merritt built in the 50s. Uh, I don't really have anything fancy in there because my belief is that if I'm writing a recipe for a cookbook, even if it's a very complicated or tricky recipe or one like I was discussing, um, I want I want anybody to be able to duplicate that at home. And so I always feel it's a little unfair if you have 
all the latest, greatest, you know, cooking implements and tools. Um, but the person who's reading your book and trying to replicate that has a you know traditional home kitchen. So my kitchen is, uh, it's equipped just like anyone else's kitchen. Plus, I, then I have a few uh, kitchen tchotchkes from my travels <laughs> that uh, that decorate it. That that's the only thing that really defines my kitchen from anyone else's. Got about a minute with uh, Chef Bob Bloomer, who's uh, one of the uh, world-renowned chefs taking part in Flavors of Niagara Falls. Many people, as you know, forced to cook on a budget nowadays. What is your go-to quick and cheap meal? Well, we do a lot of pastas in our house, um, a lot of egg dishes in the first half of the day. Um, not, we don't use a ton of protein anyway. We have a lot of plant-based things. So it, it keeps costs down, you know, amazing squashes in the winter. Um, there's a lot of ways to, to cook within a budget. Absolutely. And you can also get your mind... You can save all your money up and buy tickets for this. Uh, That's right. The Old Stone Inn. I was going to say. I did want to mention one last thing, which is the Fielding Estate Winery will be uh, our winery of choice and we'll be pouring uh, some of their wine. So it's not only a uh, delicious dinner, but we'll have some interesting pairings uh, on offer. I can taste it right now. NiagaraFallsTourism.com <laughs> forward slash flavors it? of Niagara oh, Falls. It is. It is. But uh, one can dream. Uh, Chef uh, Bloomer, thanks for the time. Uh, best of luck with this. Thanks so much. Chef Bob Bloomer is a celebrity chef, an author, a TV host, and a Guinness World Record holder, and going to be one of the stars of the show at Flavors of Niagara Falls. Thanks again to Chef Bloomer for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.